Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 21. Follow along as I read our sermon text for this morning, beginning in verse 33 of Matthew 21. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, rented it out to vine growers, and went on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. The vine growers took his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Again, he sent another group of slaves larger than the first, and they did the same thing to them. But afterward, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. They took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. Jesus said to them, Did you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected? This became the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing the fruit of it. And he who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood that he was speaking about them. When they sought to seize him, they feared the people because they considered him to be a prophet. Father in heaven, this is the very words of Christ in your inspired Bible. We pray today that you would give ears to hear and a heart to believe. And I pray that you'd be with me, Lord. I need your help as well to preach, to teach, to explain, to apply your word. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So what is this? This is a story of redemptive history. Not all the details, of course, very broad brush stroke of redemptive history in parabolic form, told in the context of Jesus' ongoing conflict with the religious leaders of Israel, here described as the chief priests, the elders of the people, and then added on here at the end, the Pharisees there in the group. Jesus has been exposing their dead religion. He has warned them and rebuked them before this parable with a previous parable, the parable of the two sons where they incriminated themselves with the answer to his question, and he do, does the same thing once again, warning them and rebuking them and exposing them with a parable then that touches upon Israel's entire redemptive history. This is a complex parable. It is so complex that translators and commentators have all kinds of different names for it. Various Bibles will have headings, right, throughout your scriptures, my Bible calls this the parable of the landowner. Some call this the parable of the wicked tenant farmers. Some call this the parable of the rejected son. It's that complex. It has elements of prophecy in it, as you would have noticed already. It has one major interpretive challenge that comes at the end. It has a minor interpretive challenge as well. What I see here in this parable, though, big picture, is a story of Israel's redemptive 
history. Israel's salvific history. And we may break this down now into six events in Israel's redemptive history. Six key events. And I want to just go ahead and show you all of these on the front end and then we'll work our way through them. Number one, God carefully planted Israel as a human vineyard in the promised land. Number two, God rightly expected the fruit of righteousness from his vineyard. Three, but Israel rebelled against God and repeatedly attacked his prophets. Four, so God sent his son to his beloved vineyard. Five, and Israel killed his son. Six, but God vindicated his son by, one, raising him from the dead, two, judging Israel and the destruction of Jerusalem, and three, and here's the major interpretive challenge, transferring his kingdom to a nation producing the fruit of it. That's the big picture then this morning of the message, Lord willing. Six key events in redemptive history. So let's go through them. Let's begin then with number one. Number one, God carefully planted Israel as a human vineyard in the promised land. Jesus begins, there was a landowner. That's God. That's God the Father. He's called the Lord here. He's called the master of the house here. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. That's Israel. And he put a wall around the vineyard. In ancient times, they would put a fence or a hedge to protect the vineyard from animals intruding in there and, and, and eating up the grapes, right? Eating up the harvest. And so God put a wall around this vineyard and he dug a wine press in it. It would actually be two wine presses. There would be one where they stomped out the grapes to get the juice out and then that would drain into a lower vat that would capture the juice that would become the wine or the produce of this vineyard. In other words, when he planted the vineyard, the landowner expected, of course, that it would produce fruit. And so he put the wine press there to capture it. And he built a tower in the vineyard. This would have been a watchtower. This would have been for additional protection of the vineyard, also a shelter for the workers of the vineyard. A fierce storm comes out of nowhere. They've got to have somewhere to go, somewhere to hide. They run to this tower and find shelter in the midst of storm. And inclement weather. Now, your Bible may have these words in all caps. Mine does, in the New American Standard. And that is an indication to us that this is pulling from the Old Testament. Let's go back and look where this is coming from. It's Isaiah chapter 5. Jesus is here clearly alluding to Isaiah chapter 5. He's clearly drawing from this passage. And so I want to read it for us. Isaiah 5, 1 to 7. And you'll see the many ways these two things connect. Let me sing now for my well-beloved, a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. Then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So now let me tell you what I'm going to do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. 
I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I, God says, will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah his delightful plant. Thus he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. He looked for righteousness, but behold, a cry of distress. So the landowner had started with the right stock. That's where it all begins, with a choice vine. Not a weed, not, not, a, not a throwaway of some sort, but a choice vine. And indeed, God did. That choice vine was Abraham, chosen of God, called of God out of Ur of the Chaldeans. That choice vine included Isaac, that child of promise, that miracle child of Abraham and Sarah in their old age. And then the line went on from Isaac to Jacob, one of two twins in in the womb there. Jacob chosen, Esau passed over. This was the choice vine that God would plant in the promised land. A choice vine that God himself moved to redeem out of Egypt. Out of 430 years of slavery to Pharaoh and the Egyptians, tyranny under that those taskmasters, right? And God moved by a powerful hand and a mighty hand with those ten plagues and that Passover event, that parting of the Red Sea that He might bring this choice vine from Egypt and plant them in their promised land of Canaan. God carefully then transplanted that vine into a soil that He had been preparing for centuries. And they would then become possessors of vineyards that they didn't plant and, and houses that they didn't build, and fields that they didn't plow, because God was judging these other people and giving, as a pure gift of His grace, this land to His chosen vine, Israel. Exodus fifteen seventeen says, You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. That's Exodus fifteen seventeen. That's right after the Red Sea crossing. That's part of the song of Moses praising God for the deliverance from the Egyptians. And Moses is already referring to this. He says, You will bring them and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance. Hundreds of years later, Jeremiah wrote this in 221. God speaking to the wayward nation. Yet I planted you a choice vine, a completely faithful seed. And then Psalm 80 verses 8 and 9 say this, You, God, removed a vine from Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. Psalm 80 verses 8 and 9. Now in those days, when they planted a new vineyard like this, literal literal vineyard, it would take... Four years before that vineyard would produce fruit, good fruit, good grapes. It, wasn't, it wouldn't be until the fifth season that the grapes could be used to produce the juice and the wine. And so what you have happening then is the landowner would have to subsidize the project. The landowner would have to support the workers year one, year two, year three, year four, until year five, until the fruit could be expected. So you have a picture here already beginning to emerge of a very patient investor, a very patient landowner planting this vineyard. To sum all of this up there in verse 33, he makes a major investment with utmost care, utmost effort and attention 
to detail. And the vineyard is Israel. Now, by way of application, by way of application, I think this parallels what He has done in our lives. In many, many of our lives, this parallels what God has done for us. God has planted us in our own spiritual promised land of Christ. The choicest of all lands to live in. God has built around us a wall of eternal security. For if you are in Christ, you are safe forever. God has given us a tower to run to in times of storm. And inclement weather of our lives. That tower being Christ himself. God has established in our hearts a wine press, if you will, because God expects fruit from us as well. The parallels are quite evident. How blessed we are. How entrusted we are. We are stewards like Israel was a steward of God's Word. And so it is with us. God has been good to us, beloved. And to whom much is given, much is required. Much is required. Now God expects from us as His people fruit. This is a right expectation of God. This is a reasonable expectation of God. He planted us. He put the wall around us. He did everything necessary that we might be fruitful, right? And this fruit consists in two main areas. And so just by way of application, I want you to think about these two areas of fruit in your own life. And I want, to, I want us to examine ourselves this morning here for a few minutes before we move on. There are two main areas of fruit that God expects from the believer. The first area is the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. Singular fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The ninefold fruit of the Spirit. And so I want you to just examine yourself this morning and ask yourself that question. Are you bearing the expected fruit of the Spirit? Does your life bear f- the fruit of love? Love for God, love for others, love for unbelievers, love for believers. Does it bear the fruit of joy, the fruit of peace, and so on? Just take a moment to examine yourself on that front. To look at your life, your heart, inside that really only you and God see and know clearly. Is there consistent fruit of the Spirit? Now the second area of our lives that we need to examine is the behavior of our lives. And this would be the fruit of righteousness. The fruit of obedience to the law of God that still pertains to us as believers. Does our life line up with God's moral law as expressed even in the Sermon on the Mount? That that picture there in those three chapters of sanctification righteousness. The Sermon on the Mount is not not a recipe for how you get saved. The Sermon on the Mount is for believers, those who are poor in spirit. The Sermon on the Mount is for those who are following Christ as a disciple to say, what does sanctification look like in the life of a believer? And so today I ask you to examine your behavior then for the fruit of righteousness, for the fruit of obedience. We have been chosen and saved to be obedient to Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, 1 Peter 1. Is there fruit of the Spirit? 
Is there fruit of righteousness? Are you as a branch abiding in the vine? Is the vine producing his life and his fruit through you? We need to take a a good look at ourselves here. We need to examine ourselves. We need to pray. We need to confess. We need to repent. We need to ask God to bring these things about in increasing measures. Well, as we move on, the second event in the parable of redemptive history, and this leads us right into number two, is God rightfully expected the fruit of righteousness from His vineyard, from Israel, His people. The parable goes on. Jesus says He rented it out to vine growers, or some translations will say tenant farmers. He leased it out to tenant farmers. This is Israel's religious leaders. This parable is aimed at religious leaders of Israel in Jesus' day. And so Jesus says He's taken this this vineyard, and he's rented it out to you vine growers. And then he went on a journey. Some translations say he moved away. And that goes back to their ancient times where a landowner would come in, buy a plot of land, do all of this work, and then he'd move to the city to enjoy the city life and have his tenant farmers carry on the work. He goes on and says, when the time of fruit literally approached, when the time of fruit approached, he sent his slaves, that would be the prophets, to the vine growers, that would be the religious leaders of Israel, to receive his produce. And in their day, the landowner got half. He got half the produce, and that was what was agreed upon. That was what was expected. Now, it is at this point when Jesus introduces to us the tenant farmers, it is at this point that we have a new element, don't we, that wasn't in Isaiah chapter 5. We have a whole new element to this parable because Jesus is aiming this at the religious leaders, at these tenant farmers, who in fact represent all of Israel. So we know that primarily those who rejected Christ were the religious leaders. But the religious leaders were acting as representatives of the entire nation. So it is right for us to say that the nation of Israel rejected Christ when in fact it was the chief priests, the elders, and the Pharisees. And so what we have here is a situation where the landowner has entered into a contract with these tenant farmers, a covenant, if you will. And there is an expected payout for the landowner. There is an agreed-upon return on investment. But lo and behold, Israel did not uphold their end of the bargain, did they? Israel failed over and over in their end of the bargain. And so God wiped them out on the spot. No, He didn't. He thought about it. (laughs) And then Moses prayed, and God declined to wipe them out on the spot. No, what happened was a very patient God, a very long-suffering landowner, sent prophets to Israel and Judah over and over and over again, right? This is their history. God did everything necessary. They utterly fail. And so God in His long-suffering and God in His patience sends to them His own messengers to call them to repentance. So over the centuries, the history of Israel is God sending prophets to a wayward people saying, you need to come back to the covenant. Come back to the contract. Come back to the agreement. You need to obey what the Lord has commanded Get back to righteous living according to God's law. Not as a means of salvation. Salvation was Passover in the Red Sea. God did that. And now here is how to live as His people. The Mosaic Covenant. They perverted it. They twisted it. They added to it. 
They ignored it. They defiled it. They stomped all over it and everything in between. And over and over then God says, here's a prophet raised up. I'm calling you back to this life. Those prophets go from Moses to John the Baptist. Think about these prophets. Think about their difficult ministry that God gave them. They were warning the people, rebuking the people, pleading with them, begging them, encouraging them, weeping over them, praying for them. Oh, come back to the fountain of life. Oh, come back to the goodness of God. Oh, come back to this merciful God who rescued you out of sin and slavery in Egypt. Again, by way of application, let's pause and think about how God has done the same thing in our lives. Here we are in a, a, you know, America is a Judeo-Christian country. We've grown up surrounded by Christianity. Isn't this same thing true for so many of us in the room? Probably nearly all of us. It's taken many different forms. These prophets, these messengers of God that God has sent to us to call us to believe in Him and to obey Him. It takes the form of Awana workers, kids, who Wednesday night after Wednesday night are calling to you to trust in Jesus, to obey your parents, to follow the Lord, to obey Him with your life and honor Him with your life. These prophets take the form of youth workers, youth pastors, and youth leaders who plead with us, who warn us and rebuke us, who weep over us and prayed for us. These prophets take the form of parents, of course. Christian parents, godly parents who God sends to their kids over and over again. Takes the form of preachers, evangelists, pastors, elders, shepherds, concerned spouses. Living a godly life before an ungodly husband or an ungodly wife. Praying for them, weeping over them, pleading for them to come to Christ and follow Him as His disciple. We've experienced so much of the same thing. So many of us, given our cultural background and where we've been raised and how we were raised. So I guess two things come to mind as we think about that context. Number one, let us bless God. God today for those messengers that he sent to us in our life and let us praise and worship God today for those godly grandparents who lived a Christian life in front of us and maybe they didn't say a whole lot but they were praying for us as their grandkids let us bless God today for that faithful youth pastor for that evangelist that showed up at that revival for that parent for whoever that was as his messenger into your life That was the gift of God. That was God's grace. That was God seeking and saving the lost. But then on the other hand, let us not be like hard-hearted Israel and tune these folks out. Let's listen to our Awana leaders. Let's listen to our youth leaders. Let's listen to our parents, kids. Let's listen to the preacher. Let's listen to our elders. Let's, Let's pay attention because they love us and they only want God's best for us. Let's not tune them out. Let's not block their phone number. Let's not not return their text. Let's not not return their phone call. Let's not close the door to them because they are here as God's representative, as God's messengers, just like Moses to John the Baptist, calling on his people, return to the Lord, come back to the Lord. That brings us to number three in the history of Israel. But Israel rebelled against God 
and repeatedly attacked his prophets. Their rebellion against God, even though they would have said it wasn't against God, it was demonstrated and proven by how they treated God's messengers. This is what Jesus refers to in the next line. He says, the vine growers took his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. That word beat there means skinned, flogged, killed, and stoned with the intent of killing. In other words, as soon as they saw the slaves show up, they pick up rocks and start throwing at him. Get out of here. We don't want to hear from you. This is horrifying, isn't it? The good landowner doing what's expected, very patient, and this is the treatment his slaves get? It's a shocking rebellion against the landowner. It's an unexpected twist in the story. Because right here, at this point, you would expect the landowner to send Roman soldiers to deal with these wicked tenant farmers. Roman soldiers to arrest them so that they could be tried, so that they could be executed. That's what you would expect as soon as the first slave is killed or stoned. And so it's all the more shocking what comes next. Because Jesus goes on and says, again, he, the landowner, sent another group of slaves larger than the first. And they did the same thing to them. This is one long-suffering landowner. This is one patient, patient landowner. Some would even say foolish. Here are the examples from Israel's history. It starts all the way back with Moses, doesn't it? Moses, who was resisted and questioned and rebelled against by the people of Israel. Not even one month after leaving Egypt. And they said, oh, did you bring us out here to this desert because there were no graves in Egypt? We could have died and starved to death and died of dehydration in Egypt. Why would you bring us out here? They began to rebel against Moses, God's prophet, God's messengers. And this rebellion would even be shared in by Aaron, his older brother. Aaron, the first great high priest. Oh, my goodness, is that not, a, is that not an omen of things to come? Here's the prophet of God resisted and rebelled against by a priest, the high priest. It went on from there. You'll remember Jezebel, wife of the evil, evil wife of the evil King Ahab. Jezebel, who persecuted Elijah, running for his life. Jezebel, who killed God's prophets. It goes on from there to these unnamed prophets who were slapped in the face, stabbed, mocked, and abused. You had Zechariah, the prophet, who was stoned to death in the temple. You had the prophet Uriah, who fled to Egypt for his safety. They went down there, hunted him down, extradited him, and killed him with the sword. And of course, you have Jeremiah. Jeremiah, who was beaten, put in stocks by a, quote, chief officer of the house of the Lord. That's Jeremiah 21 and 2. Jeremiah was later beaten again. He was later thrown in a dungeon for many days. He was then brought out of that dungeon, had a little time out, and then he was later thrown in a pit, a cistern, like an like a old well. And the text just says there was no water, it was just mud. And Jeremiah writing this text says, And Jeremiah sank into the mud. 
<laughs> How many preachers have felt that before upon being ignored, being tuned out, being criticized, being, uh, y- you know, unrighteously attacked? And Jeremiah sank into the mud. Nehemiah 9.26 sums all of this up. They cast your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who had admonished them that they might return to you. There's Nehemiah writing toward the end of the history of Israel in the Old Testament, summing up basically their treatment of God's people. The capstone, of course, on this was John the Baptist who was beheaded by Herod Antipas for exposing his dead religion, exposing his sin and hypocrisy. And so the last great Old Testament prophet, John the Baptist, gets his head taken off for his trouble. So this is the history of God's people, the history that continues on to this day among people who profess to be God's people, among people who profess to be Christians often. Uh, The short and simple application is let's not be like them. (laughs) Let's not be like them. Afterward, though, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. This is number four in the history of Israel. God sent his son to his beloved vineyard. This is more reasonable than you might think it would be. After all, slaves in that generation held, uh, in every generation, in every place, uh, slaves are held in very low esteem, right? Uh, Slaves have no authority in themselves. They have no power in themselves. They're the lowest of the low. They're slaves. They're owned by another person. Nobody's going to really respect a slave. But the son is different. The son is part of the ruling class. The son is the heir to the vineyard. The son is the representative of the landowner. The son is the future owner of this piece of land. When they sense the son, it's as if the landowner himself went. The son comes in the full authority, the full representation of the landowner. When he sends the son, what that communicates to those tenant farmers is, I am very serious about this fruit. I am very serious about receiving my produce, about receiving my fruit, about receiving my glory. I'm so serious, I'm sending to you my son. And it's at this point in the story that I just step back and I just say, what kind of long-suffering landowner is this? When everyone expects him to send warriors, he sends his son? His son who comes in peace? Number five, but Israel killed the son. But when the vine growers, that's the chief priests, elders, Pharisees, that's the Sanhedrin. When the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come. They said among themselves, they got in private, they hid, they talked about this, they schemed about it, and they said, this is the heir, come let us kill him and seize his inheritance. And so they took him by force and they threw him out of the vineyard and they killed him. And at this point, the parable becomes another precise prophecy of the death of Jesus. Because, of course, Jesus is the Son. Now, there's a lot of twists and turns in this parable, isn't there? (laughs) 
there's a lot of shocking details, and this is yet another one of them, because this is not how you get an inheritance. I mean, this is how you get yourself killed. But the vine growers are so envious of the air that they become irrational and stupid, really. They are so irrational from the fear of losing power over the grapes. They become irrational from the fear of losing their half of the produce. They don't want to remit the other half of it. And so they become completely blind to the consequences of their actions. And so they took him. This is a precise prophecy. That's speaking of his arrest and the trials and the beatings and the scourgings that would follow. And then they threw him out of the vineyard. This is another detailed prophecy of the death of Christ because Christ was crucified at a place called the place of the skull, Golgotha. And this place was outside the city walls of Jerusalem. They cast him out of the vineyard. You can read about this in John 19.20 and Hebrews 13.12. He was crucified outside the gates. And so Israel killed the son. We know that uh, Israel initiated this through their religious leaders. And though their religious leaders were front and center in the execution of Jesus, and though Israel is even now temporarily set aside in the program of God, and even though Israel even now is hardened to the gospel, and from the standpoint of the gospel there are enemies, Paul says in Romans 11, even though all of those things are true, here's another moment of application for you. There is no place ever, ever, ever for anti-Semitism. Ever. Even though all of these things are true, there is no place for that. There is no place in the mouth of a Christian for an off-color Jewish joke. There is no place in the mouth of a Christian for insensitive Jewish stereotyping. We must be done with that. That is the first step in anti-Semitism. Rather, as believers, as Christians in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, we must pray for their support. We must pray that our country supports Israel supports their nation. We must pray for their protection. They're our ally in the Middle East. We must vote along those lines. We must pray along those lines. We must give along those lines. We must minister along those lines. Anti-Semitism is evil, evil, evil. And there is no excuse for it whatsoever. At this point, Jesus does something very interesting. He invites the religious leaders to finish the story. This is very creative, isn't it? You ever been telling a story? You do this with kids. You do this in teaching. You, you tell part of the story, and then you invite the student to finish the story. And so Jesus does that with his listeners with a question. This is not rhetorical. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine growers? And they walk right into the trap. They said to him, He will bring those wretches to a wretched end and will rent out the vineyard to other vine growers who will pay him the proceeds at the proper seasons. 
Christian Standard Bible says, quote, He will completely destroy those terrible men. New Living Translation says, He will put the wicked men to a horrible death. This is like the parable of the two sons. When Jesus asked them the question, which one of the sons did the will of the father? And they said the first. They're doing the same thing here. They're, they're, they're self, it's self-indictment. Uh, their, their own words are going to condemn them. They, they've fallen right into his trap. And, and their right answer, and it is the right answer, it becomes a moment of self-indictment. He will bring those wretches to a wretched end. That was primarily fulfilled about 40 years later in the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. In 70 A.D., General Titus of the Roman Empire Army had surrounded Jerusalem for some number of weeks and months. He had laid siege to that great city. He had starved those people out as they died of starvation, turned to cannibalism, eating dead family members to survive, using the Roman Empire, a complete destruction of that city, a complete destruction of Solomon's temple, Herod's temple, that took 46 years to rebuild, until not one stone was left upon another. And as you know, to this very day, that temple has not been rebuilt. In A.D. 70, everything known to Judaism essentially ended. The priesthood ended, the sacrificial system ended, the the temple ended. They lost their genealogical records to trace back the lineage to the various tribes. All of this happened in the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 A.D. He brought those wretches to a wretched end. Now, if there is a far fulfillment of that, it would be the time of Jacob's trouble in the seven-year tribulation period that is to come. The time of Jacob's trouble, tribulation, and great tribulation that is yet to come in human history. That could very well be the far fulfillment of verse 41, the first part of verse 41, with the near fulfillment being just about 40 years later. Now we go on and Jesus confirms their answer that they did say uh, accurately. And that's what he's doing in verse 42. He confirms their answer by quoting Psalm 118, 22 to 23. I'm telling you, this is complex, so you got to just hang in here with me. This is Psalm 118, 22 to 23. It's a verbatim quote from the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Jesus says to them, did you never read in the scriptures? The stone, that's him, which the builders rejected. They're the builders. This has become the chief cornerstone. This came about from the Lord and it is marvelous in our eyes. The stone is Jesus. The builders are the religious leaders, the evil tenant farmers. Their rejection is the crucifixion of Jesus where they took the most critical stone of all And they tossed it aside as useless. The most precious, the most important, the most valuable. And they analyzed it, they evaluated it, and they said, we cannot use this stone for any portion of the building. This stone is garbage. This stone is trash. Let's discard it 
and toss it aside. And as they did that, they were in fact stumbling over the stumbling stone. They were stumbling over the rock of offense. And what was that offense? A suffering Messiah. For the Jewish people, a suffering Messiah is the stumbling stone. They cannot and will not understand that before he would reign over them, he must suffer and die for them. And so this is what is meant. The rejection is the crucifixion. And this next line, this became the chief cornerstone, is the resurrection. They crucify, God resurrects. They denigrate, God vindicates. The first great act of the vindication of God in the killing of His Son, this is number six, is raising Him from the dead. You need to understand that first and foremost, the resurrection is a vindication. First and foremost, Easter is about God vindicating His Son. You're going to kill Him, I'm going to raise Him. Raise Him to immortal life. As I've said before, preaching on, a, on an Easter Sunday, what the world should say, the unbelieving world should say when they consider the resurrection is, uh-oh, He's back from the dead. We killed Him, but He's no longer dead. Therefore, we're in serious trouble. The resurrection is vindication of God, of His own Son. But especially Jews today stumble over the stumbling stone. I want to just, uh, I'm going to have to pause here because I have way too much more to go given the hour and the time. And so we're going to begin to draw this one to a close and we'll pick it up here next Sunday, Lord willing. But as we move into point number six, and we see the first part of point number six, God vindicated His Son by raising Him from the dead, by, by des designating Him as the chief cornerstone, as the most precious stone of all, declaring Him Lord. May it continue to be for us marvelous in our eyes. Look at that there in the text. The stone which the builders rejected, this became the chief cornerstone. Crucifixion, resurrection. This, this, crucifixion, resurrection. This came about from the Lord. And it is remarkable in our eyes. It is wonderful in our eyes. It is marvelous in our eyes. I think what's marvelous is God's sovereign decree to allow for the death of His Son as the very foundation of the gospel and our eternal life and, and forgiveness of sins. That's marvelous in my eyes, is it not in yours? How is it that these people will freely and of their own volition kill Jesus and yet this was the predetermined and foreordained plan of God for your salvation? Their sin leads to our salvation. And this is from the Lord and it's marvelous in our eyes but it's also the resurrection so as I close then this morning, I just want to pray for this and plead with this, plead this, is that one, the resurrection would 
always be marvelous in your eyes. Don't get over it. Don't get used to it. <laughs> Don't think, oh, oh yeah, resurrection, oh yeah. No, this person endured the entire full wrath of God and lived again to tell about it. That's remarkable. A human being could bear the full wrath and fury of God and live again to tell about it? Some of you here today may be just like the ancient Jewish people and the modern Jewish people. You may be stumbling over the stumbling stone. You may be offended by a crucified Savior and His weakness and His shame. You may be too proud to see your need for that crucifixion to cover your sins. You may be ashamed of one who would be so weak, so pathetic, so pitiful that he would allow himself to go through such humiliation. You may be stumbling over the humiliation of Jesus Christ. You may be looking for some kind of power religion, some kind of, some kind of faith that is all about your dreams and your goals and it's all about winning and it's all about victory and it's all about power and it's all about overcoming and all of these things. You may, be, you, you may be thinking it's all about wealth and it's all about health. It's all about God blessing me with material possessions and physical uh, good things. And that's, a, that's stumbling over the stumbling stone of a crucified Savior. To come to Christ is to come to the cross. To see your need, to not be too proud, to not think you were better than that, to not think your sin didn't require such extreme measures. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you have indeed established in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. My prayer this morning is that a child or an adult, someone in this room on the live stream, someone in the gym, my prayer this morning is that someone here today would believe in him, put their faith in him, come humbly and broken and uh, to, to a crucified and risen Savior who is ready to receive them. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen.